0: Good morning, Compass. If you are just joining us, we are nearing the end of about a year-long series on the book of Mark. So um, we are literally two days away from Jesus' death in the story, and if you want to pick up in your Bibles or it's on the screen, it's in Mark 14, verses 1 through 9, and I'm just going to read through those verses and then we'll go from there. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table at the home of Simon the leper, A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages in the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So much so, this story is told, some argue, in all three Gospels, but for sure, also in Matthew and in John. And in John, I love, um, the things I love about the Mar- John's biography of Jesus is that he is even more detailed. We often learn new things. So we're going to break down and go through this account also in the book of John because we learn who some of those characters are. If we... If you remember um, from way back when we started the book of Mark, Mark is um, most likely actually Peter's gospel. He, um, John Mark worked with Peter, and so most likely this is kind of Peter's perspective. And the main thing with the book of Mark is that the main character is Jesus. Not to say it's not anywhere else, but the way that Mark tells the story is that nothing else matters. Any other characters in the story are only useful as far as they say something about jesus so if you notice they don't say who any of the mark doesn't say who any of these people are he kind of says well some disciples didn't like it and this woman came up and he doesn't mark is not concerned with who those other people are because the main story is about jesus so in john John just likes to share a little bit more information for those of us who like details. So in John, he gives a lot more information. So listen as we kind of go through that, and we'll find out who some of these other characters are. So in John 12, 1 to 2, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure spikenard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So if you are at all interested, if you look in the back, there's a diffuser back there, kind of by the food, and you can smell what spikenard smells like. If you're like me, you'll be astonished that it's worth a year's wages, but I'll let you be the judge. (laughs) It's very musky. Um, But you can kind of get an idea. You can also open the bottle. The bottle's right next to it to get like a stronger smell. Um, But one thing that a commentator was, was saying is that, I always envisioned, okay, Mary goes out and she somehow just happened to have a year's wages lying around and she buys this expensive perfume, right? That's how we would think. But what they're saying is more likely, we don't know for sure, but that this is something that in those days, similar to if you just had like a gold bar saved away, This is like that. So if their family had hard times, you kind of kept, it's like an investment. It's your stocks, it's your retirement. You keep this jar in the house. So that kind of changes the story a little bit. It's almost like she comes in there and she's so in awe, she like takes the family heirloom and just smashes it on his feet. So that changed the picture for me that she's basically taking her inheritance, the the safety net of the family and just offering it at Jesus' feet. Um, another interesting kind of comment is that, obviously, to have that just lying around, you had to be kind of wealthy. So Lazarus Lazarus, and Martha and Mary were probably a little bit more wealthy of a family. They share their home with Jesus often. Um, and so Mary, friend of Jesus, stands in contrast to just a few weeks ago, we talked about the widow, So there's um, who gave her last two pennies. So the point kind of becomes that women from all socioeconomic statuses And on the social scale, we're devoted to Jesus, which is just astonishing that they're even mentioned, much less devoted to him. But that's just um, kind of another cool comment. But as we read on, we learn some more information in John 12, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So now we get more information. Judas is the one that's pointing it out, and he actually has ill intent for the money. Um, And as N.T. Wright says in Mark for Everyone It always happens when people decide to worship Jesus without inhibition to pour out their valuables, their stories, their dancing, their music before him just the way they feel like doing that others looking on find the spectacle embarrassing and distasteful. So in the room we have disciples and followers of Jesus. We have um, Simon who... uh, is a religious leader, we have all these people whom would probably be considered the authority on what's, what's good to do, what's, what's nice to worship, what's the right way to do it, and we have Mary doing something that to them is distasteful and embarrassing and put that aside. But Jesus said, leave her alone. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Back in that same section in in the account in the book of Mark, it says, she did what she could. In the Greek, this is the exact same phrase um, where the widow puts in the two pennies. She gave all she had. So it literally reads, what she had, she has done. So both women in both stories are giving everything that they have. Their security, their comfort, their safety net, and they're pouring it out for Jesus. It's not necessarily implying that Mary knew um, or had any actual knowledge of Jesus' coming fate says N.T. Wright. She had simply acted spontaneously out of the fullness of her heart. She had, in fact, gone intuitively right to the heart of things, cutting through the male objections on one hand and contrasting the male plots on the other. So just a side note, um, this this is a little bit off topic, but um, I know, I haven't felt this way, but I know there's kind of some, um, some women especially feel as if uh, the Bible doesn't always accurately give women Uh, doesn't stand up for women. And just as a quick side note, what's miraculous and amazing to me is that in the five days surrounding Jesus' death, it's a woman who steps out around all the men in the room that should have known what was going on, that had studied, that had followed, and she cuts to the heart of things. On the night of Jesus' death, it's the men that run away And it's the women at the cross. And when Jesus raises from the dead, it's the women who find him. Not in any way saying men and women are unequal or different. But if you ever have someone come to you saying, I just don't like, how come in these stories in Genesis, how come in these different things that women are not upheld in the Bible, but in the story of Jesus, it's phenomenal, the emphasis placed on women, that Jesus valued women in his ministry just as much as he valued the males in his ministry. So just a side note that that kind of stood out to me, but um, again, Jesus is who he says he is, and he just loves us unconditionally. Um, But As we continue on in verse 9 in John 12, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So we now have this more full picture of that moment. We have religious leaders who are plotting to kill Jesus. They're just trying to to, to make sure they time it so that that people don't get mad at them because people are just flocking to Jerusalem um, for these different festivals, and they do not want anyone mad, but they certainly don't want to lose their power. So they're thinking, we're going to kill them. Meanwhile, Jesus is at the house of Simon the leper, who is a Pharisee who Jesus has healed from leprosy. So that alone is amazing. Lazarus is there. He's raised from the dead by Jesus. And then Mary and Martha are there. Martha is serving as she does. And Mary has just this rapt attention on Jesus, as we know she likes to do. So Mary, she just performs this stunning and controversial act of worship that's just offensive to people in the room. And Up until this point, it seems as if Judas has been able to kind of hide his darker side, but it comes out, and he complains to the people in the room, what is this woman doing? Very self-righteously, and ultimately very selfishly, and Jesus stands up for Mary in her unwavering devotion, and then again predicts his death. So after this rebuke, Judas turns, we kind of have this, this is the beginning of our talk next week, but... They're plotting to kill Jesus. We hear that at the beginning of our story. The religious leaders are they wanting to kill him. Once Jesus calls Judas out and kind of embarrasses him, Judas is like, that's it. And he leaves this encounter and he goes and basically sells Jesus over to the men that were plotting to kill him. So this story is incredible. The characters here are incredible and we have them also plotting to kill Lazarus because people are coming to Jesus because of Lazarus's healing. So I mean and then we also have Simon Peter who's been or Simon the leper who's also been healed. So this is Jesus kind of closest friends and companions, these major characters that we've met in the Jesus story, ones that we're already really familiar with. I know I don't know if you guys did, but I do you remember this memory verse when you were a kid? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, "You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You remember that story we we have almost the exact same setting earlier in the Gospels where Martha, she's just focused on getting things done, right? She's focused on cooking. They didn't have microwaves. It takes so much longer to cook. I noticed when I was in Uganda, I mean, cooking has a whole new thing when you don't have appliances. But Martha, she's cooking and um, doing things for Jesus. And Mary is focused on being with Jesus. And Jesus stands up for her. Very similar to Mark's account in the story, Martha is still in the kitchen in this story. So Martha, sort of, you know, she's a work in progress, but she's still in the kitchen and the leaders in the room, they're critical of Mary as she offers this act of worship. And once again, we see Jesus standing up for Mary. So there's a lot of things that we can learn from this story. It's it's really a turning point in um, Mark's account of Jesus' life, but... Um, the one thing I want to zero in and focus on is that in Jesus' view, if there's one thing we get from it, in Jesus' view, your being with him is phenomenally more important than you doing things for him. My mom uh, shared this quote with me recently from Peter Scazzaro, author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and he puts it this way, the love of Jesus in you is the greatest gift you have to give to others, period. Who you are as a person and specifically how well you love will always have a larger and longer impact on those around you than what you do. Your being with God will trump your doing for God every time. We cannot give what we do not possess. So if you grew up in church, it's probably this idea that you've heard before. Um, a lot of times, probably. But um, if you're like me, it goes right along with how much I should exercise and that I should only eat plants and not drink soda anymore, Devon, and all those other things that I never do. <laughs> yeah, At work, I, this our friend Ashley has been trying to get Devon to stop drinking soda. And you know I see him every day. He's got that soda. <laughs> it's okay. I eat about a pound of cheese every day. But um, <laughs> if, if we go by this... Um, we hear be with Jesus, but then we see a lot of people doing things for Jesus, right? So it kind of goes, it goes against this cultural messaging we have right now. And the message is like hustle, right? And if, if you're American, especially, it kind of goes like this. Okay, American history is basically some guys hustled really hard from England and they came over and they made this new place where you could hustle in whatever direction you wanted. And you, could just pursue love and happiness and all these things. And if you're not happy, it's definitely because you're just not hustling enough. And if you could just do that, then you could join the cycle of work more, buy more, repeat, and continue until you're happy. Now, I'm not by any means downing hard work or any of the sacrifices that people made to get us to where we are today in American history. But what I'm saying is that when we apply those principles... To following Jesus we just seem to get it long, wrong a lot and they're in contrast to what Jesus says the imitation of Jesus is come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light And as a society, I think we began began to notice that all of our hustling has still left us unhappy. And the bad thing about the cycle is that we're taught, if we're not happy, it's not that we should stop hustling, it's that we need to hustle more. So we hustle more, and when we're unsuccessful, guess whose fault it is? Ours. So then... Anxiety and depression shoot up, and we buy more things, and we consume more things, and so if you're if you're not a millennial and you're like, what is wrong with these people? You now know <laughs> um, we've we've bought into this as a generation. If you have social media, you might have noticed this kind of trend in in quotes and reposts. And um, I saw something a friend had posted, and it had like this list of benefits, like I can't even remember off the top of my head, but it was kind of like. Um, like satisfaction at work, feeling meaningful, those types of things. And at the top of the list, it had this heading, and it used to say hustle, and it's crossed out, and it said rest. So people are kind of catching on that, hey, maybe rest is a key to life. I mean, meditation now is something that if you look at kind of the Forbes 500 or these really successful people, they'll say, yes, start your day with meditation you'll see kind of this, this trend of yoga and just like mindfulness. And people, people are recognizing that maybe the speed at which we're going is not taking us in a great direction. And if we're not mindful, if we're not, if we're not paying more attention, then we might as well know. I listened to this podcast this week, and it said that people 45 and up in the early 2000s, that first decade of the 2000s, they were watching 20 hours of TV. In one decade, it's jumped to 22 hours of TV a week. They say that's pretty significant, two extra hours a week for people 45 and over. For, th- um, for 20-somethings, uh, video games have gone up a little bit, and TV has gone down a little bit to average about 17 hours a day that people in their 20s and lower are watching TV. And 30-somethings, it's, not go- it's actually gone down because we're just hustling because we're like that. But um, That's also, I think, probably a problem. But what we're noticing is that the hustle is not what it's cracked up to be. That our society as a whole, while we may be moving in a progressive direction and we may be kind of in this postmodern world, it's dawning on everyone that maybe it's not quite working like we thought. Maybe progress is not the direction we thought that it was in. And in the church, this hustle takes on a different form, but arguably a more dangerous form because we bring the food, we play the music, we volunteer at the things, we write the teachings, we throw the showers, we lead the small groups. And to us, I think Jesus would still say, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So my question is, what does Mary do? At first, I thought the answer is nothing. You know, everyone else is working. She's just sitting. (laughs) She didn't do anything. I mean, Martha, she's making the food. Simon is hosting. Lazarus, he's lounging as you do when you get a second life. He's just hanging out with Jesus. And... I thought, well, Mary's just not doing anything. But I actually noticed three things that Mary is doing. First of all, she's there. She made the effort to be sitting at his feet. She didn't have to be there. She could have been in her room if it's at their house. She had to walk there if it's at Simon's house. And so um, she made that effort to be there with him. Second of all, in, if you combine kind of both the first story of her um, listening to Jesus and the second story of her in um, the alabaster jar, she listened to what Jesus said. So she's at his feet and she is listening to the things that he is teaching. And number three, she worshipped him. In an uninhibited way, she took what she had and she gave it to him. So when I look at these stories, if there's like a Mary here and it's a sliding scale to Martha... I kind of am usually like right here. (laughs) And it is kind of a reality check to me because it is so much easier to be Martha. It seems crazy because, yeah, like, I mean, it takes work to throw showers, to make food, to leading the group, or whatever you spend your time doing for God. A lot of times they're more um, kind of time-consuming and they can be stressful. But being with Jesus can be hard whether that's through prayer, reading the scriptures, Sabbath, silence and solitude, fasting, or any other number of things we can we can do to be connected with him, they're all so very simple, yet in our culture of hurry and distraction, I personally have found it to be very difficult. So I've been on this journey over the last year or so, um, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from my life, as Dallas Willard prescribes. And it it really is a true challenge. Even, um, I kind of have this routine from like Thursday through Sunday, and yesterday I did not do the routine, and it was, I mean, I had this horrible tension headache, and I, you know, normally I go to Michelle's house on Thursday, and then on Friday I stay home, and I clean and relax with Fletch and Fowl, and then we go out with my mom, and we just have a nice day. And yesterday, we left the house at 8 a.m. And Fletcher and Phil and I went to Michelle's. And then from there, we went to eat. And from there, we went shopping. And then we came home. And guess whose house was not clean and ready for guests? Mine. And so by this point, the headache is like, you know, those ones that go from like here all the way down to your heel. <laughs> and you just feel like there's a rubber band. I was at that point, And I was like, this is not going to be a restful sound. I thought I've messed up, I failed miserably, and I've, not, I've been working on this for so long. But you know what's incredible is that um, God met me exactly where I was. Because we sat down for this Sabbath meal, my parents came over, and my uncle came over, and everything came together. And I sat down, and we sang a song, and we did some different things. And almost immediately, I just felt this tension headache melt. I still wasn't prepared either, because most of the time, I like to finish these talks um, in advance. I've been trying to do that instead of, like, the morning of and the night before. And I tried to do that this week, but I didn't finish. And so I knew that even after all of that, I had to get up in the morning and then teach. And so my headache should have been there, right? Because I still had more to do. But what was incredible is when I chose to rest, God met me there. Most of you know now at this point, I keep joking about my daily baths. So in December of last year, I started this practice, which you're going to laugh at me, but it's very effective. Um, Around noon, because I go to work at 2 I started this thing where, or whatever time I get in there, I start a timer, because I know I have to be ready for work by a certain time. I don't take my phone. I set a timer. I get in the bath, and I read a book. I try and memorize scripture. I pray. I even ordered, like, have you seen those kids' bath crowns, crayons? Because I have a, I wonder when I pray, like, I'm a problem solver, so I start praying for someone, and then it's like, oh, and then I could do this, and then before I know it, I'm not even praying for them anymore. I'm planning. So... I got these crayons to kind of help me stay on track. You could just, you know, erase it from your bath wall. And then there's this amazing um, thing where, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but some of you probably haven't taken a bath in a long time. But you lay back and like the water is right here and your ears are under just a little bit. And it's like you have the seashells at your ears. You know, it's just this deafening silence. And I've gotten to where I can just lay there. And it's amazing. When I pray and I'm laying there, I'm, I can't do anything else. It's totally dead silent. And it's pretty weird, right? It's a really strange practice. But it is so, it's been so helpful to me. It's been really, I've been doing it for about three months now. And it's evolved what I do and how I, how it's kind of evolved in and, and my conversations and talks with God but I say all that because for me the idea of being with Jesus um, as the most important thing it's really become this huge idea in my mind and it's kind of welled up inside to this point where it's like I have to ask myself the question is it really the most important thing to me and how am I willing to change my life to make it happen I don't have to do anything, I don't have to earn anything, but if I just want to be with Jesus, what does that look like for me, and not, how do I make it happen? Not to work harder or earn anything more honestly or anything like that, but more like how much am I willing to put effort in to sit at Jesus' feet? And that's the question I have for you today. What would it take for you to sit at Jesus' feet? Maybe you're like way along this path and you're just like, Man, what? But For a lot of us, if if the statistics are correct, five minutes could be an accomplishment. Ten minutes could be an accomplishment. Don't set it out trying to do an hour if you're just now starting. Start out for just these tiny pieces of time and experiment. Practice it. What does it look like for you? If you don't know that answer, that is okay. But what would it look like for you to start practicing? Maybe the bath thing works for you. I think I'm probably pretty weird, and I don't know if that'll work for you. But find something that works. Ask God what you should do. Mary sat at Jesus' feet, and twice Jesus defends her to the religious leaders of the day and to his own followers. There is only one story in all the biographies of Jesus, where Jesus says wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I want to be like Mary. The invitation of Jesus is always come to me. So will you come? We thank you for your reckless love. We thank you that you're always coming after us, and we just ask that you would teach us to sit at your feet. Teach us what that looks like for us. Teach us how to open our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies to be changed to be like you. We want to know you. We want to follow you. And we just ask that you would give us the courage, that you would give us the grace to turn and look at you to pause in our lives just long enough for you to communicate with us, just long enough for us to notice the things that you might be doing, the things that you might be saying, and we just ask that we would be a people that hears from you, that we would be a people that doesn't just consume the things that you offer. We're not just here for the music. We're not just here for the donuts. We're not just here for our friends or the plethora of reasons we could be here, but that we're here because we want to follow you. We want to be like Mary, and sit at your feet regardless of what everyone around us is doing. And we thank you for that story, and we continue to share it and remember you in your name. Amen.